Hey y'all, and welcome back to another episode of Faith and Friends. I am so truly honored to have our sweet friend, Helen from Exodus Cry here with us today. This podcast is all about scripture stories and songs. And today we are hearing about the story of Exodus Cry and all that they're doing. I am truly blown away by this movement that has just gained such amazing momentum and they're kicking Satan's booty every day. And so they're so near and dear to my heart that I just had to share them with you and all the things that they're doing because we need to get involved. And so Helen, thank you so much for making time for us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Georgia. It's an honor to be on your podcast. So fun. But before we get in, I know all of our friends are going to be like, where's Helen from? Because she just is so fun to listen to. Helen, where are you from? So I am from London in England, across the pond. um, And I've lived in the States for eight years now and got my green card and it was a real journey of faith um not knowing if i would be able to to make america my permanent residence but i really feel like god made a way and yes so we currently our headquarters are in california in southern california and um i sadly haven't been able to go back to england for a couple of years because Mm -hmm. of covid but um yes all my friends and family um everyone's still living over there wow so what brought you over here Specifically um, to work for Exodus Cry, I had previously been living in Cambodia and working in our aftercare uh, restoration program for victims of sex trafficking there. And um, I actually first really found out about the issue, the global issue of sex trafficking through hearing Benji Nolo, the man who's now my boss, um, share about it through a, uh, and praying for this issue um, in a meeting that was streamed over the internet when I was at college and that led me to actually doing a trip to Cambodia and then later moving there. I trained after college to be an art therapist. Um, But all the time that I was working with women who'd already come out of sex trafficking, I always felt very, um, just that urgency of how are we reaching the women who are still in the sex industry? And so I would go to the different brothels and karaoke bars and massage parlors um, and just talked to the women who were sitting outside and my heart was just very drawn to them and wanting them to know that they were seen and loved. And while I was living in Cambodia was when Nefarious, if anyone has seen our film, if you haven't, um, our first documentary that came out uh, 10 years ago now, it's free to watch on YouTube. It's a global look at sex trafficking around the world. Obviously I'm biased. I think it's the best documentary on sex trafficking that I've ever (laughs) seen. And I was living in Cambodia when that film came out. And I remember thinking, the director, Benji, he's done such a fantastic job. I tracked that, um, you know, since 2007, 2008, um, when I first connected with them, he'd founded this organization and he'd produced this fantastic documentary. And it's kind of a, a long story, but in a nutshell, a year later, I moved out to America to work for them, which I thought would just be a one-year thing. And it's turned into eight and a half years later. That's amazing. I'm just so grateful to get to know your heart and for us to just hear your story. And so thank you for being so willing to share and to share your life in such a beautiful and positive way, because what you're doing is so needed and so seen. And it's such a special calling that not everyone is called to. And I'm just so grateful that you said yes and had your yes on the table because it's not an easy yes. Every day has new challenges and different things, but you have to just cling to him every day. 
And man, I'm just so grateful. And you're just, you're just so beautiful inside and out. And so, okay. So where did this all begin with your story of feeling so passionate? Was it, was someone close to you affected? Were you affected? I remember getting lost in London when I was 16 years old and um, found myself in this kind of alleyway and it was a red light, not exactly a red light district because London doesn't really have that, but there were some um, peep shows and sex shops and strip clubs and um, adult, quote unquote, stores. And standing in this doorway was this woman in a red dress and she looked Eastern European and as I was kind of mentally quickly processing where am I and what I should probably get out of this area um, because I was only 16 and I was lost, I realized that this woman was um, in prostitution. She was standing in front of a, um, what was operating as a brothel. And I just remember that reality, seeing that face-to-face really um, hitting me in such a clear way. Like the first emotion I felt was real anger, like, I could be some um, you know, smelly, perverted, horrible, disgusting man. And just because I have some money in my pocket, that somehow in this whole setup right here gives me agency and power and control to purchase the sexual consent of a vulnerable woman. I, I didn't even know, have the concept of human trafficking at that point, but just seeing the raw reality of prostitution faced up, um, face-to-face, I thought, I don't know this woman's story, how she's ended up in this position, but I know that if I was said man that I just described, she would not want to be having sex with me, but I'm purchasing her silence. I'm purchasing her consent Mm -hmm. for her to tolerate having sex with someone that she does not want to have sex with. And I just had this anger, like this is not right. No woman should ever be in a position where she is um, forced to um, have someone that she does not desire have sexual access to her. That whole concept of like, someone paying to silence someone else, paying for their sexual consent. Um, I immediately understood that this this is a form of coercion. This is not okay. Our society is failing women. Um, And I later went on to fully understand all the elements of sex trafficking and coercion, how many women end up in a position like that, in a doorway like that. But my second emotion in that, um, that like second right there was, I want to give this woman a rose. I want to, just give her a token of her beauty, her humanity, her self-worth. I just want to look her in the eyes and just say, I see you and you're loved. Um, and I remember um, like walking past her, walking out the other side and like looking for a florist. I couldn't see one and I thought she might be offended if I did that. And I, my heart was just racing so fast and I got on the train and I was crying the entire journey home. And I wrote this account down in my journal, which I found years later Um and I just remember thinking, even though it was at university that I really found out about the global um, crisis of sex trafficking, I think something really significant happened in my heart in that moment of like anger at the injustice and in system of prostitution, but deep compassion for any woman who ever finds herself in it. Mm. And that I think is exactly how Jesus felt mm-hmm. that deep, righteous anger. Yep. But paired with compassion. Because all throughout the scriptures, we see how moved he was by someone's compassion. And I'm just so grateful that you felt both of those emotions hand in hand, because one without the other, (laughs) it can be dangerous. And so I'm so, I'm so grateful because that's being angry at the right thing. It's like those two forces are um, 
are so intrinsic and fundamental to doing this work. And I feel like mm. over 10 years later, I still feel that righteous anger. But I still feel the compassion is the most important piece. And if anger ever overrides that compassion, that can become, you can become bitter and cynical and twisted in this work. And I never want my heart to be in that place. But exactly like you said, I sometimes think of, of Jesus righteous anger when he t- overturned the tables and that whole situation those two accounts in the temple um, it was all about the sacred being commodified and what was meant to be the temple place of worship for God um, greed and exploitation and prevention of people worshiping there was what was causing him to drive that out and so I I think of prostitution as like the ultimate commodification of the sacred and Jesus heart is to to overturn the exploitation as much now as it was then. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for for saying all of this. It's so good. And for our friend that like, this podcast is the first thing they've ever heard about anything, not even knowing what the term brothel means. Can you explain some of these terms to us? Yeah, sure. I mean, so a a brothel is a, a residence, a location where sex is for sale. And most people hear that term and they think of the windows in Amsterdam, which um, Amsterdam's first female mayor is actually shutting um, that whole red light district in Amsterdam down um, in a historic move. And they've stopped all the propaganda tours, um, kind of quietly admitting that uh, this is not uh, in any way uh, empowering to women or something that as a city and nation, they want to be at least publicly uh, demonstrating women for sale in windows. I can't think of anything more overt, like uh, obviously exploitative than that. Um, but a brothel uh, could be a an apartment, a house where usually more than where more than one woman is um, or person, uh, man is for, um, for for sale in an exploitative context. Um, it could also be an Asian massage parlor. Um, if women are um, being required and demanded to do sex acts. So it's typically understood to be a place where there's more than one woman, more than one person in a location where sex is for sale. There's often a quote-unquote manager who we would also classify as a pimp um, or a trafficker if they're making money off people who are being exploited and trafficked in that uh, location. Wow. Okay, so for the girl that's 15, 16 in her 20s, 30s, what can we be aware of on the internet as we're out in society? What are some red flags, things that we just need to be aware of through different messages or accounts um, that you've seen over your your eight years? Yeah, I mean, I just think that um, it is really, really important to educate yourself on what sex trafficking is and what it isn't. There's a lot of myths out there about um, who's being sex trafficked and how they're being sex trafficked. And so something I just really encourage people, especially people new into um, talking about um, wanting to understand this issue, educate yourself um, in in the right ways. And don't only just um, read individual accounts of, of someone online that isn't verifiable, but read books written by trafficking survivors who describe what sex trafficking looks like in America, in the world. Start by watching our film Nefarious as a starting point of educating yourself and even understanding how, and there's a quote in our film that says, trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability. And so Mm -hmm. most traffickers um, 
they very much identify who the most vulnerable populations are. What is their vulnerability that they can exploit? So whether it's um, a girl from a broken home, someone with a really low self-esteem, someone who's coming out of the foster care system who doesn't have a close family unit, or maybe it's someone literally still in foster care, girls in the juvie system, um, homeless and runaways. Obviously, they're like the most obvious um, people who are vulnerable in our society. But I would go further and say that um, these days, anyone who has a Wi-Fi connection and has strangers online that are talking to them and wanting to meet up with them. I mean, we all know, I mean, and I grew up in that, you know, the internet age where um, had a lot of um, teaching on being careful about talking to strangers online. But I think that it goes beyond just not meeting up with someone that you're talking to online, but it's, um, um, yeah, the, the grooming process that many traffickers present themselves as a boyfriend. And so it could be months that they are uh, coercing you. And so I think um, for pe- anyone who's under 18, just um, you know, talking to their, like if your friend is in a situation where they're just, um, they're talking to an older guy who's like lavishing them with expensive gifts um, and you just identify some red flags of potential grooming of like this guy, there's a clear like unequal power dynamic in this relationship. And maybe he's isolating her or causing her to just like disconnect from her family or leave town for a few days or, or she's missing school. Like some of the more obvious um, red flags and just maintaining, um, like be a safe friend for people in your life. Or if you're a, a teacher or an, you know, any position of influence, be a safe person that anyone who who is potentially vulnerable in your life would choose to talk to you um, if they were going through anything like that. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. I've gotten some strange messages on the internet and those things you just delete and say a prayer mm-hmm. because my goodness, it's Absolutely. it's a very, it's a door that can be opened and you didn't realize it, the door was opened. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm really grateful to hear all this. So Trafficking in the U.S., a lot of people, I think, for me anyways, I think I'm speaking for myself, for so long we thought that this was distant, that this was, oh, far off in, in other countries, but it's huge here in America. It's Correct me if I'm wrong, but is the U.S. the greatest trafficked country? It's I, probably in the top ones. I don't know. Yeah, it kind of uh, depends on how you even define trafficking as well and how um, cause a lot of the, the data doesn't take into account women trafficked in the porn industry, for example, really um, okay. or sites like Pornhub, where the U S is the number one producer and consumer. And a lot of content as we spent the last year of putting back the veil on and exposing, um, are really individuals of, of trafficked, uh, women and children, whether that's in the U S or in other countries. Um, so it's, it's definitely a challenge to, to quantify, which, um, you know, the, the, the trafficking persons annual report um, judges each nation each year on how well they're fighting trafficking. Um, but sometimes countries like Germany that fully legalize prostitution, they can somehow end up getting the tier one status, even though they, in my opinion, are not doing enough to go after the route, going after demand. Um, but yeah, I think in the last few years, there's definitely been a real awareness of the reality of trafficking like you say Georgia that it's happening in America not just overseas and even what it looks like in different regions you know what trafficking looks like in India versus Eastern Europe and Russia versus Japan versus um, uh, 
New Zealand versus here in America, it all kind of looks a little different. Um, and so I would really, yeah, encourage people to, as I said before, um, read survivor memoirs, read books, watch documentaries so that you can understand, have more of a global picture on what this issue looks like. So what have you found it looks like internationally that's different than here in the States? Because I know we have a lot of international listeners as well. Yeah, and a great question. I've done this work in 10 different countries. And so I have been to red light districts um, all over the world. We did big, um, for the World Cup and the Olympics in Brazil, we did big uh, outreach initiatives. We partnered with over 500 churches during the 2014 World Cup. And we had like 24-7 houses of prayer and churches from across the city and each of the 12 hosting cities partner with us and we train them in outreach. And um, so a red light district in Brazil, for example, where prostitution is legal and it's a lot of street activity and pimps right there on the street. It's, it's so almost normalized. Um, and the women in Brazil are so hypersexualized. It's kind of um, almost accepted in their culture. And I feel like that is beginning to, to change and there are movements that are pushing back on that. Uh, but then when we went for the World Cup in Moscow, Russia in 2018, um, prostitution is illegal and a lot more um, underground, you could say. So a lot of our outreaches were undercover in hotels and um, finding women over the internet and um, doing undercover outreaches with them in the hotel lobby where we would give them a gift, give them time and space and talk about the different resources available to them, um, which ended up, we were meeting several girls who had been trafficked from Nigeria into Russia during the World Cup and um, were able to um, expose a, um, a trafficking ring that had been operating for several years there and coordinate a raid with the local police and the media and I won't even go into the details of how all of that unfolded, um, but it resulted in us being able to um, help place some of the trafficked girls um, in programs back in Nigeria mm-hmm. and legal justice for the pimps and traffickers there. Um, and then a lot of trafficking would take place in the forest in, in Moscow. So they would, cars would drive off the main road. Girls were held in minibuses and the buyers would shout a price out the window of what they're willing to pay and each girl is ranked according to her appearance her age so the girls maybe at the lowest price would all have to do a lineup in front of this guy's car with the headlights beaming um you know whatever the weather was even in the snow they have to do a lineup and if he doesn't like the look of any of those say 10 girls he shouts the next high number and then another 10 girls get out of the bus um and then if he finds one he likes there might be three or four guys in the car and they take that one girl to a hotel and she's being dropped off at those locations by pimps. Uh, over here in the US, it's um, a lot of trafficking is advertised online um, and even through networks. But for those who are specifically seeking underage girls, um, mm-hmm. those are um, specific networks where they um, ad- advertise there. But um, brothels are sometimes called stables um, where it could be a a house as I said an apartment a location or even a hotel where the trafficker takes his handful of girls to a hotel for a few days or a few couple of weeks and then moves on and so often online you see women advertisers just in town for a few days there's a lot of movement and traffickers intentionally move women around to isolate them to create displacement prevent them from um, having um, friends in that city and area obviously trafficking 
on the southern borders looks different from trafficking um, in, in the big cities, in rural areas, it looks different. Um, but there's a lot of common and similar themes. And what's been really tragic to me is seeing um, the, the numbers of familial trafficking in the US, where family members are selling their own children, um, sometimes for mm-hmm. drugs, sometimes um, because they're just wicked, nefarious people, and yeah. um, sometimes selling their stepkids or their nieces, nephews, or kids they're babysitting. Um, and so we've worked directly with several survivors who were trafficked by their own parents or parental figures. Mm. It's it's so, so sad. And it's such a dark place that we really just got to shed the light into it. Show the severity of the problem. Yeah. Because I think for so long, the church has been afraid to even speak up. So hearing that the church, that you would band together with churches and go love on the people, that's what we're called to do is to love. Yeah. And so what can we as the church be doing? And the church is not the building. The church is the people. So what as we, the people of Jesus Christ all over this world, what can we be doing to support Exodus Cry, to support your film, to support the, the mission? I know there's a petition out and there is a new film that we're going to talk about, but what can we be doing? Yeah. Well, I feel like, um, you know, you were telling me earlier that you found out about our work through through social media. And so yeah. um, for anyone listening who's not tracking with us, that's the, the easiest and best way to just even follow us and find out what we're doing um, at Exodus Cry or visit our website and watch our films. We have a series of different, even educational two-minute animated videos on our YouTube channel. We, we also have a podcast as well, which I really recommend people listen to. Um, you can sign up to get our emails. And if you sign up to kind of become an abolitionist, you'll take, you receive a series of emails that are kind of these several stages of educational emails to really um, kind of walk you through how to understand trafficking. Because I feel like there is a lot of rhetoric and even in the church of like, yes, we want to end sex trafficking. And there's a lot of zeal and passion, especially when you first find out about this. And that is the question that every person asks Georgia is like, what can I do? What can mm-hmm. we be doing? And um, for, for me, I know I, I spent the first year or so um, just praying um, and, and reading whatever book I could, books I could find. I began sponsoring a girl who was um, in a program coming out of trafficking, someone I still sponsor to this day um, wow. after 13 years. And, um, you know, even a student at college, like that 10 bucks a month, I think what and what's sowing a small amount of money, even if it's a few bucks, it actually like connects your heart to it. And so I'd say, even if you only have like one dollar to to spare a month, um, find a charity, an NGO that you want to just even kind of intentionally connect your heart with. Obviously, I work for Exodus Cry, but there are a lot of great organisations out there as well. And um, I would, yeah, just really encourage people if you have to read. Um, if you have a couple of books to read, I recommend um, Paid For by Rachel Moran. She's a, um, a survivor. Or um, um, Rebecca Bender is another um, survivor who's just written a book. Um, and Harmony Grillo, um, her book, she, she came out of the, um, the legal strip clubs in L.A. Um, but was exploited, was a, is a survivor. And her book um, is called Scars, Scars and Stilettos. Girls Like Us by Rachel Lloyd is another book. Um, so I, I, I do really think that 
hearing the stories from survivors is one of the best ways to understand this issue. And, and also the, the approach that, that we're taking as well is we want to understand this issue from the big picture. Yes, we want to assist um, individual people out of sex trafficking, and we do do that. Um, but as an organization, we're committed to thinking about what are some of the long-term solutions? Like, how do we actually end sex trafficking in 10 years, in 20 years? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the legislation that's most effective around the world in doing that? How do we get that passed in different countries? How do we get that passed here in America? And looking at, you know, if you picture a tree, what is at the root of sex trafficking? It's male demand for sex. And um, we often say if every man stopped buying sex today, sex trafficking would end today. And of course, you know, we know that that's not going to happen in one day or overnight. But the premise remains that um, how are we going after the roots, after the culture, um, after this practice of, of normalizing purchasing another human being for sex? Because you can you know, help, help 100 sex trafficking victims exit, but as long as there's a demand and a lot of money to be made in this industry, which we know there is, um, mm-hmm. pimps and traffickers easily can find another 100 vulnerable girls to traffic. So we have to um, really go after the root. And the root of the root, <laughs> that's what we've been talking about in the last year of um, our trafficking hub campaign, which yeah. is our... Um, several people have, have heard of, of extra crime, what we're doing. And we started this campaign um, that quickly be- went on to become a global movement. And we started a petition that over 2 million people signed um, calling for um, accountability and justice for the biggest porn website in the world. And we were showing that they didn't verify age or consent on their website. So that meant that thousands of people, potentially more, um, had the videos of non-consenting um, or even underage um, uh, videos were, were getting on their website because they didn't have a verification system in place. We were hearing directly um, from a lot of victims and um, connecting them to obtaining legal justice, um, covering their costs for therapy, which mm. is something we still do, and just pulling back the veil really and showing that on these even mainstream pornography websites, there are victims of sex trafficking or rape or underage abuse and their videos are being on uh, being put on this website which immortalizes their trauma. Imagine yeah. if you're a survivor trying to heal and you know that there is a website making money from your video and anyone could download your video. Um, it's being showcased to thousands of people. And so this campaign built and built um, and at, right at the end of 2020, it was covered in the New York Times on the front page. And um, a few days later, all the main credit cards um, cut ties with, with Pornhub, which is owned by this company MindGeek that own about 70 to 80% of all online porn tube sites. When I say a tube site, just to even help people understand, because I think if you've never seen any of the stuff or don't really know what I'm talking about, um, it's kind of like YouTube. So People, most videos on the website were homemade videos that they would upload and they clearly weren't moderated properly because um, uh, they, they didn't vet the agent consent um, of these videos. So Pornhub took down 10, almost 10 million videos, almost 80% of their entire website after the credit card companies cut ties. Um, mm-hmm. They removed the download button and um, the ethics committee in Canada where Pornhub's based began a, um, a whole public investigation 
And um, I think to date, 97 victims have uh, sued MindGeek owned sites. So that's just kind of like giving the big overview of our last campaign before I yes. share about our next campaign, just to catch people up on what's been oh, happening and so um, stuff in the news about it. So that's the backstory. Oh, that like just hearing those numbers, 10 million videos were taken down, 80%. That's incredible. I'm just so grateful. Thank you guys so much for all that you do. And yeah, I had just like, I have no words, but I have so much I want to say. Oh. So what is this next campaign and transitioning into the fall? I know you've had your hand in this and your heart in this. And I got to see a sneak peek and I'm very, very excited about all what y'all are doing. It is the, the film that we're going to be talking about. It's very hard to watch. Helen, I got to tell you, it was very hard to watch, but it, it should be. It should be. It was very eye-opening. It was just enough of what you needed to see to grasp the the realness that this is happening. And seeing the interviews, seeing the statistics, everything was beautiful. It was an incredible documentary. I know you love that first one, but this one is also just beautiful in a very hard eye-opening way. But you know, that righteous anger and that compassion, that's exactly how I felt. And so I just pray that's what everybody else feels when they are viewing this. And and I would say going into viewing this and anything of this industry, pray as you go into it. Pray to ask the Lord to soften your heart and to to find that righteous anger and that compassion and to, you know, to guard your heart too as well. Uh, our vision is to shift culture and change laws so that the bigger picture of how we overturn them and abolish sex trafficking in our lifetime. And thinking um, back to the porn industry, when I lived in Cambodia, um, I remember a, a girl that I interviewed telling me that when she was, she was trafficked into brothels in Cambodia when she was 11 years old and throughout her teen years, uh, Western men from the US, from Europe, would come to these brothels, show her pornography on their phones and get her to reenact what they saw. And that was the very first time that I actually really connected pornography fueling demand for sex, for sex trafficking. What we showed in trafficking on through the Trafficking Hub campaign was that trafficking victims were being filmed and those videos were being monetized by big porn websites. Um, we also know that women are, and, and girls, kids are trafficked in child porn, in under, undercover or under, underground situations of and pornography being filmed in warehouses and, and, and put online. But it's not just on the dark web. It's um, There are pornography videos um, across the board where the women have not fully consented to what is being shown. And that's something that we'll be addressing um, further down the line and later. But the, the, the final point that we just really wanted to, um, to emphasize is that the porn industry is a predatory industry and it knows that uh, there's a lot of kids and teens being able to access what is on their website. And when I say what, what's on their website, we're talking the most graphic, violent content you could imagine. We're talking um, you know, whole mainstream genres of abused teen and violent depictions of choking and strangling, um, really, really violent um, content and rape fantasy, racist fantasy, incest, um, some of it is is acted, but because there's no way to verify um, the consent that that a lot of the the real videos on these sites 
um, our real exploitation. And I would say to someone who's pushing back on that, I'm like, you have no way to know. Like, how do you know the person behind that screen has given their consent? You, you do not know. You have no idea. And we're saying that right now, any five, six, seven, eight uh, year old who has access to a phone, the average age of uh, first time, uh, like kids being given smartphones right now is 10 years old, but often kids younger than that have access, you know, their, their moms or their older brother or sister gives them the phone to play on games. Um, and any kid who hears, who, who is either searching on Google, but often even accidentally every day is stumbling onto sites like Pornhub. There's no age barrier at all. So, you are instantly on this homepage with all these videos that are being auto-playing and a kid could just click on one of these videos and for the next however many hours be watching the most hardcore violent sex acts imaginable. And so our, this whole next campaign is called hashtag protect children, not porn. And we're saying this is absolutely outrageous that any person under the age of 18 can access um, these porn websites, there needs to be age verification, just like we universally accept that if you're going to buy alcohol or tobacco, you have to show a government ID. We wouldn't let big tobacco companies give out free cigarettes to six-year-olds in the elementary school playground. And yet the equivalent of that is happening every day on these porn sites where kids are welcomed in. There's zero protections, zero safeguards. So we have, have another petition um, that anyone can sign um, if from our website, it's probably the, the easiest way. Uh, the whole campaign website is extracry.com slash PCNP, which stands for Protect Children, Not Porn. Um, and we just feel like this needs to be the next minimum safeguard across the porn industry that protects um, kids because they, your brain isn't fully developed when you're um, under the age of 18. Everyone knows that. And most people who suffer from lifelong addiction to pornography were first exposed um, under the age, age of 18 and it's the most addictive content it's the most violent content and kids have never had such easy access to this as they do right now um, so that is the kind of the premise of the campaign and the film that you mentioned is called Raised on Porn it's a 35 minute documentary we're going to be releasing it on YouTube um, at the end of September we really want it to be the most accessible to people to watch to share um, we did create this with communities in mind, churches in mind, parents in mind, like would they feel comfortable sharing this? And the film just talks about the impacts of pornography, specifically underage exposure to the brain, to behavior, um, and hearing the real stories of different people of how it impacted their whole lives. And that there, there isn't a more urgent topic right now, in my opinion, of how it is um, just hijacking people's sexuality causing so much addiction, depression, um, suicidal thoughts, shame, um, issues in relationships. And um, for girls um, feeling like, well, there's just so much that ways that pornography is impacting people. Um, and so we, um, yeah, would encourage everyone to watch Raised on Porn um, on our YouTube channel. I love that you brought up the relationship aspect. There's one interview in the film that I honestly can't stop thinking about. She she shared her story and how she was in a relationship. And this boy started saying very violent things that he was going to do to her and all these things. And just very graphic. And Sweet Girl was scared, which she had right to be. Yeah. And 
you know, there are so many people that, that need to hear that. And us girls, when we, we, we start these dating relationships and we need to understand that there are 16, 17, 18, in their 20s, 30s, there are very old people that are addicted and struggling with porn. And it's so deep, they don't even see that there's anything wrong with it. And the film, what I loved that I could grasp my, my mind around was it's a trickling effect. Like you can't go, like if you click on the website of Pornhub, it's just violent from the start. They said, I could be wrong, I don't remember, but that you'd have to search 10 to 15 minutes to find something that wasn't violent. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's not what a 10-year-old, 11-year-old is. They're going to see what's the most accessible, what can I look at? And so honestly, I got to tell you, Helen, when I started dating my boyfriend, that was one of my first questions. Good. I, I have nothing to hide. And, you know, that can be a kind of an intimidating question to ask someone, but when you can understand the depths of how bad and destructive it is in relationships, and it is to that person's heart, soul, mind, uh-uh. And, and he said no. No. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. I just, just, you're probably hearing my cat, Helen. This cat will not be quiet. She wants to join our conversation. But... I, I just definitely think everybody should see the film. Mm-hmm. Be really cautious in your relationships. I'm so glad you, you mentioned that and brought that up because I think a lot of girls just feel like um, this is such a widespread issue that, of course, you know, I just assume every guy is going to be watching porn and so why maybe I should just be a better girlfriend and watch it with him or just not feel like I can even ask that question that, I'm so glad you asked. And I would say, um, like, what porn does to brainwash people, like, they need to detox. They need to, like, be, you know, I'd say not watch porn porn for at least six months before um, you'd um, begin dating them. And that they there's a lot of amazing resources out there to, to really help people and not just guys, you know, ever-increasing uh, numbers of people watching porn are, girls it's still by far the majority guys but um a lot of girls I feel like um it's there's curiosity it's normalized in 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 our mainstream culture now for this to be something that girls watch just as much um and even curious to know what what are their boyfriends watching um and that is equally as harmful on girls brains as as guys maybe in some different ways in some aspects porn does to a lot of guys is um, especially teenage guys is um, think that it's normal to ask girls for, for similar photos and similar videos. Um, and that was another whole thing we dealt with on Pornhub, a, a lot of um, revenge porn, quote unquote, although it's not even porn, it's like a form of abuse against girls, um, that nude pictures or videos that they'd sent their, their boyfriend pressurizing them. And then he went and shared it with all his friends or worse, put it on a porn site. And so I have a friend who tells Kids in, in high school and elementary school, if anyone ever asks you for a nude, send them a picture of a nude lipstick. <laughs> um, and just for girls to feel emboldened to say no, to maintain those boundaries and to be like, no, I will not date someone who's watching porn. Like, how can I be in a loving relationship with someone who is every day watching the most violent images of girls being potentially raped on screen? Like, they need to get help. They need to get connected to um, therapy or online support and accountability groups and understand that um, this is 
something really urgent for them to to deal with. And in a shame-free context, like the worst thing that can happen is someone just keeps it a secret and lives the lie and in denial. Like they need to be able to tell um, people or get the help they need. Um, and we have a whole actual resource page on our website um, about all the different types of resources for different people affected in different ways. So from our campaign website, right at the top, it says resources. And I really encourage anyone who wants to um, get more help uh, to go there. We want the world to know and understand how porn is harming um, like kids and, and teens and why it's such an urgent issue right now to have that age barrier and safeguard. And we might not be able to protect every person from sending a picture of their private parts to underage girls. And that is a serious like crime and needs to be addressed in its own context. But um, if we're able to hold porn websites to this minimum standard that could protect, you know, even, even if it's 80 or 70%, even 50% um, of our young people being able to um, you know, see this while their brains are so malleable and um, vulnerable to being um, really impacted. Like someone described it as I felt like I was being neurologically raped um, from what I was shown and it uh, was so traumatizing for them and that's not okay with us. So really encourage you, even if you're 15 or 16 or 17, add your name to the petition. Um, and there's so many petitions going around, it can get a bit old, but I think when it's a petition that's something you really care about, have your name added to it as a sign of, um, I'm going to lend my voice because petitions really can galvanize worldwide movements that do change the world. Mm-hmm. It starts with you. My name is on the petition. And so it is going to be in the description on Apple and Spotify. So friends listening, please, please sign your name and you can just stand in agreement with us And I'm just so grateful that we've got to have this conversation today. And it's not our last. We're definitely going to have Exodus cry back because I'm just so grateful. And we have so much to learn and to understand and to just bring into the light. And so just to all you friends listening, your story is important. And so it's okay. You're not alone. We see you and we love you. And that's what Helen's been doing for all these years is just seeing and loving people. And if no one's given you a flower today, let us be the first to, to tell you that this with this flower that you are beautiful and that you are seen and that you are not too far gone. And we love you. And Helen, do you have anything else to add? Just that um, I know this issue is really um, is, is a dark one but I just know that it is so, so on the Lord's heart. And sometimes it can be to just kind of tune off or tune out or be like, I don't really want to even think about any of that. It's too overwhelming. But that's how the problems get worse. And so for anyone, um, I just say like, lean into the discomfort of some of these conversations. Like it's, it's so important. And like, we welcome you as an activist, whatever age you are, whatever sphere of life, whatever job you have, you don't have to be doing this work full time like I am um, to really make a difference. And so for the years before it was my full time work, I was still making a difference in whatever ways I could. And so if this is something where you're, you just feel that like, that whether it's that angle, that compassion of like, I really want to do something. I'm not really in a situation where I have a lot or can do a lot, that doesn't matter. Like welcome to the abolitionist movement join um, what we're doing and um, share with your friends and family 
um, our petitions, our films, and just, um, yeah, join in with what we're doing because we'd really love to have you as part of it. Absolutely. You can follow them at Exodus Cry on Instagram and definitely check out their podcast too. And like she said, please watch the films and I'm definitely going to go deep dive on all these resources. So I'm so grateful that y'all have those just available for all of us. And I'm just so grateful for your story and your heart, Helen. I'm so inspired by you and just the fact that you would spend your life loving others through the love of Jesus and extending a hand, partnering with righteous anger and compassion and speaking up for those that can't. You're making such a difference in this world and I'm so inspired. And so thank you for having your yes on the table and thank you for saying no to the porn industry. Thank you so much for having us, George. It's been a pleasure. Bye. I am so glad you're still here. Friend, thank you so much for tackling the hard topics with me. I know some of these conversations are uncomfy to walk into, but there's so much freedom as we bring them into the light. I cannot wait until we get to chat again. I'll see you next week. Make sure to subscribe. And don't forget, there's a song on your heart only you can sing. Your voice is important. Bye!